Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Mm -hmm. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area. following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen, just as if he knew what he was doing. Uh, with a great malaise. With a great malaise. I remember the great malaise. It was one of the champion wrestlers back in about 1950, along with uh, yeah, like hell of a Ray hell of a magician. Yeah, he was. They had the guy who uh, Carter who cut women in half. Uh, yeah, he did it as a public service. <laughs> public service. <laughs> Meanwhile, back at the ranch. Hey, Burl. Oh, uh, that's Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker, Frank C. Gerardo Jr. Last seen. In San Diego, has not appeared. Well, he appeared in San Diego, but he's been on tour. He's a wreck on top of the wreck on tour. Uh, your guest is here. Hi there, guest. Oh, I know who our guest is. Our guest is Denny Griffith. Denny. Hi, Denny. Bro. Hi there. Uh, well, you're somewhere in the rustic woods or someplace. <laughs> I'm actually in Spring Hill, Florida. Spring Hill, Florida. Ah, where the mosquitoes are large and the humidity <laughs> is high. Yes, mosquitoes are large there, about the size of hummingbirds. Larger than life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've been to Florida, and I've seen some of those mosquitoes, and damn, they're large. I thought they were pterodactyls. <laughs> you probably were. Ah, long, a long way from Las Vegas. He certainly is. Now, uh, you got so many books about Vegas. Hold on a second while I choke, okay? <laughs> you have so many books about Las Vegas. Yeah. Why another one? Yeah. <laughs> this is a cool story, though. Not that the others weren't. Name of the new book is Wrong Numbers. And uh, what I'm interested in, uh, Denny, not only is the, the story, but how did you get hooked into this one? Well, I... There was a, a fellow I knew was an investigative reporter on uh, local Vegas TV, his name of Glenn Meek. And I had, I had seen him and heard him on the air over the over several years. And he reached out to me, uh, I guess it was probably about two years ago or maybe a year and a half ago. And he wanted to know if I'd be interested in working with him on a story about the adult entertainment, or actually the, the call girl racket in Las Vegas. And I wasn't sure. We, we talked and uh, communicated by phone and email. And my interest or, or my focus on Las Vegas had pretty much ended uh, after the murder of Tony Spilatro in 1986. And when I would do uh, presentations or book signings and so forth re regarding my books, the audience would, somewhat would undoubtedly ask me, well, what happened to the mob after Spilatro, after they were driven out of the ownership, hidden ownership of the casinos? And I would, my stock answer was, well, there's too much money in Vegas for them not to have uh, kept some ties here. I said, but I don't really know for sure what they did. I haven't pursued that. So there was always a little bit of a curiosity with me was what happened to the mob after after the Spilatro era ended. 
And uh, Glenn uh, had done an extensive investigation into the adult entertainment and specifically the call girl racket. And uh, Burl, I, I know that you undoubtedly remember uh, back in the day, like I'm talking, um, well, even when I first went to Vegas on vacation, the, the strip was loaded with the... Uh, with, uh, handing out those little p- pictures of the various girls and... Exactly, the leaflets, and they had the and, news boxes. And that, you know, huge tr- that huge truck. All over. That huge and truck that says, delivered to your room. You know, yes. all these gorgeous women. I always felt so fl- so sorry for those women cooped up in that giant truck, stacked <laughs> like cordwood. I always wanted to run over there and rescue them, you know, Captain Sable <laughs> and get them all out of that truck before they suffocated. <laughs> and, and they were very aggressive. So they would actually come up and want to, you know, tell the the women we're you know we're taking your husband or boyfriend or whatever, and you're welcome to join us. And they would they would actually sometimes physically grab the guys and and and, and try to lead them away. And um, it, it was a, it was a problem. And I know Metro Las Vegas Metro was one of the things they were concerned about, but. Um, I, I never paid much uh, that much attention to it. It was kind of an annoyance when, like, when I was there and, and vacationing and so forth. And the telephone books at the time were loaded, the yellow pages. I mean, page after page after page of these so-called escort services, which were basically a cover for prostitution. Uh, so, fine American tradition. Exactly, exactly. And and Glenn Meek had done um, an investigation where he found that what had happened, uh, a enterprising hacker who, who was able to hack phone systems had actually taken over an intercepted phone call to call to was supposed to go to mob-controlled escort services. And they were being diverted to renegades. So the uh, the, the mob finally realized business was falling, uh-huh. and they couldn't quite understand what had happened, why they were losing business. So they sent some enforcers out of New York City, uh, the New York mob, to investigate and try to find out why they were losing business. And that that's basically the story. Uh, that whole story is, is what's in wrong numbers. So they found out that someone was smart enough to hack into the phone system. And let's say I'm staying at the uh, the Strat, and I want a uh, 25-year-old redhead with uh, one leg and three nostrils to come to my room. I don't think the Strat existed at this time. Uh, uh, yeah, it did. It just they called it something else, Vegas World or something. <laughs> anyway, and so I call up and I say, I'd like to, uh, an order to go, please. And... <laughs> uh, Instead of it going to Escort Service A, which is controlled by uh, someone with a broken nose, it goes instead to uh, somebody else's Escort Service, and they send out their own employee or their own independent worker. And so exactly. So you would have still gotten your uh, the girl you ordered, except sure her employer would not have been... Uh, who you thought you were calling. Not that you probably would care, <laughs> you know, uh, about the affiliation, but the mobsters uh, were quite concerned. Yeah, I could, I could understand that. I had a very similar situation when I was working in Las Vegas because one of my jobs was booking 
uh, those uh, working women, fielding the phone calls. You know, very similar to what the FBI agent did, except I was doing it to get paid. Yes. <laughs> and uh, same problem. And I couldn't figure out what the deal was. Uh, like I said, it'd be $1,500 worth of business booked for uh, Sally Pivnik. Uh, but when the person shows up, it's not Sally Pivnik. <laughs> it's somebody else. <laughs> and they try to work the poor client for more money, and they're mad at me. <laughs> Yeah, amusing yeah, to you now, but it wasn't amusing to them then. <laughs> that was nineteen seventy. No, wait a second. That was nineteen. Uh, no, two thousand two. So, uh, when was uh, uh, our case happening? What was the time frame? Uh, yeah, when was this? The, the thing with the mob and the hacking going on. What years? Nineteen ninety eight was uh, was when this. Uh, Plane was implemented. And how so long did it last? It was relatively new at this point, and not yeah. very speedy. Yes, it, it it was it was relatively new, and it, it took a little bit before the mob started catching on. You know, they're noticing the drop in business and trying to figure out what could possibly be causing that, because of, you know there, there was still the. Uh, you know the tourism and all that stuff. There was no, there was no sort of a client base or potential client base. So there had to be some other reason that they were not getting the business they were, uh, they felt they should be getting. And uh, one of the gentlemen who was uh, dispatched to to investigate and try to figure out what was causing the problem or who was causing the problem was a guy by the name of Vinny Tanguisti. Ah, nice guy. And called, <laughs> called Vinny Aspirins because he took care of the mob's headaches. Oh, so how, how kind of him. I bet he was yeah, high-priced. So <laughs> and the unique thing uh, that separated him or made him unique from some of the other enforcer types, uh, hitman types, was he liked to use... Uh, a power drill as well as he like would use a gun. Well, I can and understand the escort business of using the power drill. That makes yeah. sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, so Vinny and a few other people, two or three other people, uh, came to Vegas and started uh, doing some, shall we say, interviews and uh, uh, trying to track down where the issue uh, was coming from. So it turned into a, made, then the FBI got involved and did a, an undercover operation, a lot of wiretapping, and uh, through Glenn's reporting, he got access to a lot of the documents and uh, and the, the individuals that were actually involved, uh, you know, the FBI, now, now retired FBI agents and so forth. So, and uh, he was able to get all kinds of documentation, uh, wiretaps, uh, copies of wiretap recordings. So uh, he was able to put together this uh, very nice package of this uh, situation. That's helpful in the escort business, too, to have a nice package. So yeah. it all <laughs> makes sense to me. <laughs> I remember you talking about one girl uh, in here, and her name was Susie Thunder. Yes, I bet it was. <laughs> Thunder down under. Was yeah. she yeah. friends with Pussy Galore and Plenty? <laughs> yeah. I <laughs> uh, probably know her. 
<laughs> but my question is, it sounds like the FBI came in to help the mob because the mob was getting ripped off. Well, it, it actually almost appeared that way. That that was not their goal, you know, to, to, to benefit the mob. But their goal was to, because there was all kinds of violations now. I mean, you had... Uh, you know, federal stuff, the uh, communications uh, interference and all these different things. The tortuous and, interference uh, with business relationships, probably. Yes, yes, sure. I mean, it was, just because the business was illegal, it doesn't mean they didn't have right. <laughs> yeah. That's right, especially in that town. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you want to sell your rump, you better go to Pahrump. That's right. That's right. <laughs> So it was a story I'd never heard in that detail. You know, I'd heard stories about adult entertainment and all that, and I knew they had the men's clubs and and, and so on. But the uh, the escort services and, and the hacking of the phones was uh, was something I was not familiar with. So I, I I really enjoyed getting into that and learning myself what had happened uh, because it was you know it was a whole new ball game. That is really weird. So the feds are into it from the standpoint of there's laws being broken, not so much in terms of prostitution, that wasn't a big concern, but rather in terms of uh, uh, the theft of service, uh, interference in business relationships, and the hacking of other people's phone systems, which, yes. is, a, which is a bigger crime. Yes. So that, uh, as they say... Las Vegas makes for strange bedfellows. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and there you have the, the feds more or less coming to the aid of, uh, of the mob who was getting uh, hacked. They didn't come help me when it uh, was happening to me, but the idea is nice. <laughs> it is, yeah. It's just the, you know, it a, they, they did it in the right spirit, right? <laughs> yeah. I hope they let the girls out of that truck before they suffocated. <laughs> well, it always really bothered me. <laughs> you know, I, I used to stay, before I had a stable, shall we say, residence in Vegas, I probably stayed at every uh, hotel, motel, some of the pretty scary ones <laughs> you got down there. The I-500 from the mine? Yeah, uh, what was it? The uh, the one where the movie star committed suicide, a TV star, just down from the Strat. Uh, the Oasis. Mm -hmm. And a few of those where you could, you know, rent the room by the hour, <laughs> by the day, by the week. And you needed to bring quarters to get a yeah, massage. Yeah, well, you had the massage, the beds vibrated with, <laughs> yeah. or, without, with or without the quarters. <laughs> 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 and uh, having stayed in all those places... I see the same people staying at the same, at the different motels just as I did, and, uh, uh, and then I'd go to work and find out that oh I'm actually representing the young lady who <laughs> was in the room next to me at the motel with her eight foot five boyfriend with all the muscles. <laughs> <laughs> I thought she looked familiar out of the brochure. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, how did the well, what did the FBI do besides have to deal with a guy who's you know call up and say would you like Sally and uh, Ruth or would you like Black and Decker? 
I mean, this guy with the drill does not sound like someone you want to negotiate with. No, and uh, in fact, one of the wiretaps that uh, that Glenn has is the uh, there was a conversation going on from between one of the guys who had been sent by New York to uh, to Vegas, and he was talking to his supervisor, superiors back in New York, and he says we got a. He said, we got to talk louder, he said, because uh, they, he said, Vinny's got a guy in the next room and he's working him over. He said, I can hear the drill bit now. Oh, <laughs> that's scary. Yeah, and and they had to intervene at one point because they were doing this undercover thing and they set up an FBI agent to, um, in, in the guise of running an escort service. He was going to be a manager of an escort service. Uh-huh. And they set him up in that. What they found out was that the the uh, the bad guys were getting a little bit too close to the guy they thought was the hacker ah. and his associates, and they were afraid somebody was going to get killed. And, of course, obviously, they wanted to let this thing go as far as they could, but they couldn't sit by and let somebody get uh, get hit. Yeah. So they had, they, had to, uh, they had to pounce a little sooner than they would have liked. But they didn't dare take a chance on letting somebody die while they're monitoring the uh, monitoring the situation. So they, they did what they felt was the the best thing to do. But they uh, they did it to protect Human potentially life, yeah. the hacker. So did they, they get the hacker and uh, spank him and then give him a job working for the feds? That uh, yeah here. Well, there's a whole bunch of things, and they ended up. They had civil lawsuits as a result of this thing, and they had they had all kinds of uh, stuff in the the Nevada Telecommunications Commission, and all these different agencies got involved, and everybody was uh, trying to sue everybody else, and. Uh, for for loss of business and theft of services and all these different things, so and then um, then some of the people who uh, had been involved while all this court stuff was going on ended up uh, uh, having health issues <laughs> and uh, wait 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 but they had health issues. Yeah, well, a couple of them died. Well, that's that's a health issue, all right. <laughs> serious health issue. Yeah, very serious. The odds of recovery from death are minimal. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it was quite a time in Vegas, you know. I mean, uh, I, I like to say it was new and uh, new to me. And uh, I didn't get into it, and Glenn didn't either in this book, the the adult clubs, the men's clubs and stuff that, that in addition to what was going on with the prostitution thing, um, there was a lot of action there, too, and I, I'd like to sometime get into that. Well, uh, of course, that's still going on, so... Well, yeah, I mean, you still got those gentlemen's clubs, and hopefully the men act like gentlemen, but I'll yeah. give you... A, for those of you who are interested in going to gentlemen's clubs, <laughs> or <laughs> the, the, the lap dance uh, headquarters of the universe were near you, Here's the trick, okay? Take a date with you. If you have a woman with you for the lap dance, you get a much better lap dance. Is that performing for a lady? That's a fact, an absolute fact. If it's you and your girlfriend, you'll get a great... But if it's just you, they're a little leery of your leering. <laughs> but if you've got your girlfriend with you, 
they go all out hoping to get the girlfriend. <laughs> to, as the ICATS said to my friend Nancy when we visited Icantina years ago, well, the ICATS said, if I don't get you, Tina will. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Pearl, let me ask you a question. I, uh, how far back do you go with, with Vegas? When when were you first going okay, to Vegas? Uh, Vegas 70, 1970. Gary Nassif went to put on um, an outdoor rock concert in Las Vegas at Cashman Field. Everything's okay. quiet in Cashman Field. You hear that you know, chirping, chirping of the <laughs> Katie Dids or whatever it is. And then, meow, you know, Janis Joplin. It was, well, they shut that thing down because they said it was an excuse to sell pot. Uh, but then he went ahead and did Kiss. And, uh, but we had Gary on the show. We did a whole show on how rock and roll changed Vegas. So, my first uh, work for Vegas was 1970, and, and uh, then from 1970 to uh, however long Gary had gone to production, was doing those big concerts at the uh, Sahara Space Center and the Aladdin and uh, Las Vegas Convention Center, uh, Terry McManus and I wrote and produced uh, all the advertising for uh, his shows, including oh. Jesus Christ Superstar, where our big line was, Jesus Christ, and his only Las Vegas appearance. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason I ask, I got uh, several months ago, I was contacted by a guy who, who said he had this story, a very mysterious situation in Vegas from 1972. Mm-hmm. And it was about a uh, a casino that had opened, was open for less than a year, and then went out of business, went belly up. And um, it was called the Riata, R-I-E-T-A. Uh, yeah, 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 I remember that. Okay, well, the, the, the gentleman I was talking to was the son of one of the owners, named Fertel. His name was Fertel. And... I said, well, what is so mysterious about it? I said, I, you know, there were various businesses failed. And, and so, well, he said, this one, he said, you can't find any record of what happened. He said, it's very bizarre. Hmm. And his dad has since passed away. And he was, he was trying to uh, figure out what the, what the problem was and what was going on. She couldn't get any information. And uh, the Riata was, uh, became the Silver City. And was had uh, some longevity as the Silver City, but uh, the, I tried to track down. And I've, I've been fairly successful over the years, being able to get some information. Uh, I very rarely strike out completely. And one of the principles of this uh, Riata deal was a fellow I don't probably won't mention his name here, but he he was the hired as the casino manager, and he kind of took over because the chief owner was an out-of-towner. He only came in like once a week or something to, to check on things. And this guy supposedly was stealing the place blind. He and the dealers, I mean, it was like a, ah. a piggy bank. Yeah. And so I, and this guy, he was also involved later with the Aladdin. I'm sure you're familiar with Oh, I'm very that. familiar with the Aladdin because that was one of my biggest clients. They had me on retainer. And whether I worked or not, I got four grand a month uh, just for being cute. 
<laughs> wow. Well, you might know that maybe sometime we get a chance we can we can talk, and, and you you might know this fellow that I'm interested in. Anyway, it's like he dropped totally off the face of the earth. There is no record of the guy. There's no record of. Uh, you know, and of course, the gaming control board, because he was licensed, uh, but they will only give you certain information. They won't give you any uh, dates of birth, social security, that, that kind of stuff. They will only say, well, he was at this license to be a manager, work at this location and that location. But, um, you know, I've come away with this, and I, I don't know what you think. I'm wondering if when the when it hit the fan at the Aladdin and they had that big deal, I'm wondering if he might have ended up turning government witness, and I'm, I'm trying to figure what would account for this guy to have no history. That might be it. And that's the only thing that seems to make sense to me. I, I'm, I can't be sure, but that you know, it's just odd that nobody ever heard of this guy again. And like I say, it was like he disappeared from the face of the earth. And uh, uh, did you run trace like on a social security number and all that stuff, taxes? And Pardon me, I didn't hear you. And did you run a check on my social security number and his tax filings, etc.? Tried to, and I can't get any information. There's just no record, no record, no record. And in fact, one person said that they thought he had died and was uh, was found in a seedy hotel uh, off the strip. And, uh, and probably the room next to mine. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I checked with the coroner's office and stuff. You know, it was an unattended death. I figured it probably would be a coroner's case. And um, no records. So, I, again, I'm totally flummoxed. But sometime we get a chance, I'll, I'll give you this guy's name. And you might very well know him or know of him. Yeah, I can do some checking. As you know, for some bizarre reason unknown to all humanity, People will tell me things they won't tell anybody else. <laughs> like uh, the well, Secret Service, the former... I'd love to find out. It's, it's, it's a mystery. It's the type of thing, you yeah. know, that you just want to try to figure out what the hell what, what went down. And uh, and it's, it's, it's kind of a pick, I mean. Well, uh, a lot of times, as you know, people will use aliases as long as the alias isn't supposedly for the purpose to deceive or commit, commit uh, you know, I mean, disc jockeys change their names as often as professional wrestlers. Yeah, uh, yeah you your know. name is Sal, Sal Rabinowitz. Saul Rabinowitz, yeah. Because <laughs> there's a very famous wrestler, Saul Rabinowitz. <laughs> yeah, I remember him perfectly. As I was going to write a book on uh, great Jewish football players. It's going to be called Jews and Pigskin. But... <laughs> That one's not going to sell very well. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and something else I want to tell you. Um, November 19th. Yep. I've got another book coming out called oh my, Survival. Oh, my God. How do you do it? <laughs> How do you crank these suckers out? You just had one out last month. I'm going to have five out this year altogether. Wow. Uh, and Survival, I, I don't know if you remember, that there was a, a boxer. He was the... Uh, Cruiserweight champion of the world at one point. His name was Vinny Curto, mm. C-U-R-T-O. He was a Massachusetts guy, Boston kid. And uh, he, he had been sexually abused by his, his father. Apparently was a homosexual, and his father used to, and some of his buddies, they used to come in after a night at the bar, and he'd let everybody have open house with his kid. So, so Vinny was... Uh, 
was sexually abused as a kid. He survived survived that and, and went on to become a world champion boxer. So this uh, the story's uh, the, the survival title was uh, and his message is to, for the victims of this, this you know childhood sexual abuse not to give up and that uh, and actually encouraging them not to take it in the silence. They need to tell you know if they're being abused they need to say right. something and and get it out there. Well, see now with the uh, the new rule and the new law, if you've been sexually abused by clergy, for example. Uh, even if uh, you're 50, 60 years old and it happened when you were 8 or 9, you could still go after them. Yes. And uh, so lawyers are having a field day with that. Oh, you bet. Yeah, that Catholic scandal there, the clergy scandals, uh, and I, I wonder how many billions of dollars they paid. the church has paid out so far with it. Oh, well, it's a good thing they got that stash of diamonds and jewels over there. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why they build up all that loot. Because they knew sooner or later the other shoe was going to drop. But Vinny, Vinny had, as he was took up his boxing, his father made him box. His father said, you're totally worthless. The only way you can ever redeem yourself in my eyes is if you become a world champion boxer. So anyway, that got Vinny on his road to, to, the, to the boxing ring. And he was fighting uh, in New York City in Madison Square Garden. And he was supposed to be fighting a, uh, a new up-and-comer, and Vinny was going to go in with a, uh, and the new up-and-comer was a mob guy, was a mob-owned mob, uh, mob -owned fighter. And, of course, they wanted to get him off with a hell of a record, you know, to get to get some big uh, big money right. fight. So Vinny was going to use an assumed name, because Vinny was trying, under his own name, trying to get a title shot, so he didn't want anything on his record, you know, that right. would cause him a title shot. So... He was in the Sammy the Bull Bravado, who was in his prime at the time, um, was at ringside, and this was his fighter that Benny was going to fight. Well, the ring announcer happened to know Benny, so when he saw whatever the hell name Benny was going in under, he just disregarded that. Oh, no. He said, well, here's Benny Curto, and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, Benny's, Benny's doing the fight, it was a 10-rounder, and he says... He's out there, and he's letting the guy, he said the guy couldn't break an egg, you know, he wasn't <laughs> hurting him any, he said, but he just let the guy slap him around basically every round. So he said, finally, at the, he said at the, at the middle of the fight, after the fifth round, he goes back to his stool, and he hears this big roar in the crowd, and he says to himself, he tells his corner man, he said, what's that, I know it's not a roar for me, he said, <laughs> he said they're booing me, and uh the cornerman says, oh, he says, Sinatra and uh, Jilly, his, his friend just came in, the, the crowd saw him, saw him enter. So it happened, Vinny had met Sinatra, so Jilly comes over and he says, hey, he says, uh, it, as, as they start the sixth round, after that round, he says, uh, you're not fighting the way you can fight, Frank's concerned, what's the deal? He says, oh, he says, I made an arrangement with Sammy the Bull that, uh, you know, I'd, I'd take a dive. And he said, that's what we thought. He said, Frank said to tell you that deal's all off. He said, try to win. Ah. So then uh, he said, oh, great. So he goes out the next round. He, <laughs> he would have had to actually get a knockout to win at that point. Right. He was so far behind. But he starts uh, starts hitting this guy, and all of a sudden they're in a, in a clinch, and he looks over, and there's Sammy the Bull at ringside. And he said, I could read lips. He says, I'm going to effing kill you. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently nobody told Sammy the Bull the steel was hot. 
then he ended up, uh, he knocked the guy down once, I guess he ended up getting a draw. It, it came out as a draw. And Sinatra and Jilly had to smuggle him out of the ring and, and take him to Las Vegas to hide. Yeah. Because Jeez. the bull wanted to kill him. So anyway, it's quite a, quite a story. It's got a little bit of everything. It's got organized crime, uh, the fight game, the uh, trial sexual. It's got got the whole deal. Everything. It's, yeah, everything but the kitchen sink, and they probably use that too. Yes. Uh, you know, it's, I yes. found it so fascinating to learn about the boxing game. I had dinner one night with uh, this guy who had multiple bruises and black eyes all over his face. He was and the cauliflower ears. I mean, you know, you could a bird's eye would have bought his ears if they could have. <laughs> and uh, uh, he was explaining to me how it works and why he was so beat up. He says, you know, it's unlike, he says, professional wrestling, which is show business from beginning to end. Uh, and you, everybody knows who's going to do what to who and, what, you know, how it's going to end up. He says in the fight game, it's okay, I know this other guy is supposed to win, no matter what. He's going to win, unless I knock him out. If I do that, I'm going to be in trouble because <laughs> yeah. I'm not there to knock him out, right? <laughs> Same sort of thing. But uh, if you get pissed off or something happens like what you're talking about, the guy goes and knocks him out and just upsets everybody. Of course, it's yeah. not good for his career. But uh, that's a pretty corrupt... Uh, I was thinking maybe they ought to just do it boxing like they did with wrestling and make it, you know, world boxing entertainment and take it yeah. to totally out of the sports category. Yeah. Put it under entertainment and brain damage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and a lot of those guys wind up so punch drunk, you know, from uh, closed head injuries being hit in the head. They only got hit in the head once real bad when I was a baby. I don't even remember it. Uh, but that messed me up for the rest of my life. Uh, you know, I, I go to Vegas to go to play blackjack, and part of my brain that got whacked is the part where it has to do with, like, arithmetic. <laughs> I, I have to count on my fingers in front of the dealer to figure out what I've got in my hand. So much for tells. I'll just tell them everything. Yeah. <laughs> so I figure these boxers that got whacked around, you know, like Muhammad Ali, used to float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Yeah. Yeah, he was, uh, mm -mm. he and Howard Cosell, <laughs> you know, could get a room. It was pretty sad by that point. But yeah. They actually liked each other. They liked each other. Yeah. Yeah, so did Sonny and Cher, but they got a divorce anyway. <laughs> In fact... On Sunny's The Sunny Comedy Hour, you know who his first guest was? Howard Ooh. Cassell. Yeah. Yeah, how do you like that for a piece of useless trivia? Yeah. <laughs> well, sock it to me. <laughs> That's laugh-in. <laughs> Richard Nixon said, sock it to me? <laughs> uh, I bet you met a lot of famous people in Vegas, huh? I don't think I did, <laughs> but I think you did. You were there. You were there a long time. Yeah, I did. Uh, I did the snowboard thing in Vegas for over 19 years. You did the what thing? The snowboard. I, you know, Vegas in the winter and New York in the summer. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, you don't. You still don't have a place in Vegas anymore? No. Sold that. Uh, well, I got to tell you. Like I say, we did 19 years of it. 
and it got so I started having major back problems. So where we used to be able to do the drive from New York to Vegas in like three nights, I couldn't stay behind the wheel for the number of hours I used to. So you know, I had to keep stopping every so often and stretch and all that kind of thing. So what used to take us maybe three nights to get to Vegas was now taking seven and eight. Oh no, that's too much. Yeah, and you know you're living out of a motel every you know you drag your ass into a motel every night. Yeah, I did that in Vegas everything. for a couple of years. <laughs> yeah, right. So that's when we started doing the Florida thing because it was you know half the distance. Right. So that, that that's what got us uh, in the current thing is. The, but it's the so Florida it gets thing. so much more humid in Florida than it does in Vegas. Vegas at least you got that dry heat of the desert. Yes, it's very, in fact, we got here on the 9th of October, and it was just starting to cool off a little, you know, get down in the, the 40s and 50s at night in New York, and I come down here, and it's, uh, you know, 97, 96 almost every single day, and then uh, with the humidity, and then at night, it gets down to 75. You oh, know, no, not uh, down to that cold, 75, I don't think I can handle that. <laughs> <laughs> You know, my sister, my sister, bless her heart, used to live in Palm Springs. And she'd come up to Seattle to visit. And it was, Seattle would be like, say, 75 degrees. And to us, that was pretty damn warm. And she'd show up with a coat on, you know, a muckalucks, a parka, because she was so cold at 75 degrees, because she was used to like 102, 110, you know. Okay. Your body changes. Your blood gets used to it like a frog in boiling water or something. Yeah, like you know, I I remember I think it was the first time I went to Vegas on vacation. I would have been in the, in the late seventies, as I recall, and the it was February. And when we left New York, it was on one of these week long charter charter things. And when we left New York, the temperature with the wind chill the day at the airport was twenty six below. Whoa. And we got to uh, Vegas, and uh, you know they're giving you the weather for report as you're as you're coming in to land, and they said it's uh, it's a chilly 62 degrees. Degrees, it's, <laughs> it's 88 degrees. <laughs> it's chilly. Yeah. And then, uh, but we did see we when we were on the you know we took a couple of bus tours and all that. And yet the people were uh, like you were just saying. Uh, Dressed up in you know parkas and uh, ski masks and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. Thought it was thirty below zero. But, yeah. uh, to me, it was a heat wave. Yeah. Well, I was in uh, Anchorage, Alaska, doing research on one of my true crime books, and you got these people like really are wearing ski masks and stuff all the time because it's so damn cold. It was thirty degrees below zero when I was up there. But this, I had this lady on the show, uh, they did a TV movie about this for a lifetime where she gets kidnapped and they put all this dynamite on her and make her rob her own bank. Yes. Uh, and that's why I had her on the show. And she says that after this was all over with, she and her daughter moved to Alaska to get away from anything that would remind them of this horrible ordeal, ordeal of being kidnapped and held and dynamited and everything. I said, wait a second, wait a second. I've read your book. You talk about how these guys that held you captive were all wearing ski masks. So when you got to uh, Anchorage and it's 30 degrees below zero, didn't it bother you that everybody's wearing a damn ski mask? 
<laughs> and she says, yes, it was terrifying, but it never occurred to us. We just figured geographically if we went to Alaska, there'd be nothing there to remind us of our ordeal. <laughs> Instead, <laughs> everyone who's looking at them looks just like they're kidnappers. <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it shows the importance of doing your research. Yes. <laughs> now, uh, the Mob Museum in Vegas. Yes. Now, you were kind of uh, instrumental in that thing, if I remember. Yes. Is it all the Sicilian and Italian mobs, or do you have some of the other things, too? They, they When I was around the opening time, was pretty much the you know Italian-American mob. Uh, but I understand, I haven't been there in a few years, but I understand that they are expanding, and they're adding a lot of stuff to it. And... Uh, you know, which is, which is a good thing, I think. So I'm quite sure there's a lot more there now than uh, than there was. And in fact, Glenn Meek is going to be doing a presentation there, um, you know, based on the Wrong Numbers book. He's got a, a presentation he's going to do. I don't know if they have a set a date yet, but uh, they're going to have him in to do, the, uh, to do that piece of it. I was always interested because my uh, book I've got, I always like to plug my own stuff, of course. <laughs> the book I have coming out this year, Stealing Manhattan, which is about the largest diamond heist in the history of America in the Diamond District. And the guy who did him, uh, of course, did the book with me. And he would love to do a dog and pony show at the Mob Museum on uh, how they did their, their giant diamond heists. And uh, I thought that was kind of a, an interesting thing because they, the mob was so instrumental in, in both sides of that and that they were controlling the insurance companies and so that if you were, to, you were insured for $100 million and you got robbed, you got paid full retail value in two weeks of your inventory, which you couldn't do if you were selling it. Yeah. And so they loved being robbed and the safe company was in on it, teaching him how to open all their safes. The security companies were in on it. And even a lot of law enforcement liked having the diamonds that were left out for them to put in their pocket. He just had the major case squad, I think, was about the only people who weren't excited about it. And uh, so it was just really uh, bizarre. Largest uh, mega heist in American history, over a billion dollars in diamonds, jewels, precious gems, uh, between 92 and 94 in New York. And I got the guy who did it uh, as my co-author. So it's uh, pretty interesting. And he just has a thing about the Las Vegas Mob Museum that he would love to uh, make some donations and uh, do a presentation. But I'm not quite hey, sure. Have you been in touch with them yet? I've got to figure out who to get in touch with now that you're not there. I've got a, I've got a name for you. I can email it to you. That would be great. I'll, I'll email that to you and also the name of this other guy from the Rihanna, yeah. see if you ever heard of him. Yeah, and if, I, if the name doesn't ring a bell, I know other people that... Uh, uh, that know that remember names. I have a little trouble with names, Ralph. So I <laughs> 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 it's a little difficult for me to remember. And also, you know, one of the the great blessings of my life, and it's not just being a true crime investigative journalist, but having, shall we say, surfed the different social strata of America, where I'm as perfectly comfortable talking to uh, a criminal maybe more so than I am talking to law enforcement. I'm not quite sure who I trust more in their behavior. Yes. As uh, what George Anastasius tells the story about the uh, 
The person says, what's the difference between the wise guys and the cops? He said, the cops have got badges. That's the difference. <laughs> I think that's very true. Yeah. And uh, was well, uh, Sean Sullivan, New York. Well, he had like a five-year federal case or something uh, that he finally won because they had him with the wrong crew, I believe was the reason. Anyway, he was saying, yeah, he says, back then, he says, the uh, the federal agents were simply considered one more gang. <laughs> you yeah. have this gang, that gang, the mob, this mafia family, the federal gang, you know. And we naive Americans tend to always think of it in terms of law enforcement and law breaking, but that's not the way it works. And it's quite a shock sometimes for people to find out that's not the way it works. And the uh, the line between who is criminal and who is law enforcement fades rapidly when you, uh, or even you just take the uh, the Michael Dowd, Ken Urell story documented in uh, Betrayal in Blue based on Ken's uh, memoirs. The NYPD knew that Dowd and Urell were <laughs> crooked as could be and they just let it slide because they didn't want a scandal. So they just let them keep doing it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we don't want to stop these guys. There'll be another scandal. So yeah. we'll just let them keep doing it. Make them 13 <laughs> 13,000 a year as cops and uh, 8,000 a week providing uh, protection for the Dominican drug cartel. <laughs> it's an easy choice on who's your best client. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I went back years ago, about 10 years ago, we had on the show uh, the um, police chief, former police chief from Seattle who was there during the, uh, the riots that they had about the World Trade Organization. And he's now a member of law enforcement against prohibition. Well, they want to legalize or decriminalize all the drugs so there isn't the corruption involved because it's so easy to lure the police away to do something illegal because the pay is so damn good. Well, if you take away that incentive, <laughs> you know, the price would drop besides. But uh, same sort of thing. Uh, the uh, uh, who And if you got corrupt cops, who's going to blow the whistle on them? Not the other cops, because you may need to rely on that guy to have your back in a gun battle someday. You don't know. Exactly. So it's a, it's a very iffy situation. And then you got poor old Vito Colucci, who's there, was probably wiretapping everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Man, and then you had Kenji Gallo, who was, wore a wire for God knows how many years, got away with it, with the feds. Yeah. I mean... I, he was a fascinating character because the guys he wanted to bust in the mob was because they were assholes, basically. <laughs> he didn't want to bust everybody, but just the just the crooked crooks, the ones you couldn't rely on. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a problem. You know, as Bob Dylan said, to live outside the law, you must be honest because there's rules. Yeah. But uh, that honor among thieves is now a... An illusion worthy of David Copperfield. Well, you know, that reminds me. I, I, uh, a friend of mine has, has a book coming out November 12th called The Accidental Gangster. And uh, it's about the biography of a fellow named Orlando Ori Spado, S-P-A-D-O. And he was associated uh, with the Columbos out of New York. And his mentor was Sonny Frances. Hmm. And Sonny now is, what, 102 or something? 
Yeah, but, yeah. But, Sunny, 102. Yankees, 14. <laughs> but he was the, uh, the uh, you know, the man when it comes to mobsters, mobsters for longevity. And uh, uh, it, 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 I know it because this, this Ori Spado and I grew up and went to school together. And uh, he called me one day. I hadn't seen him in 50 years, and he called me from California. He was known as the mob boss of Hollywood. And uh, he was telling me, he said, well, after, after I'm, last saw you, he was in the Army and I was in the Navy, and we were both in, in Hawaii, and we happened to bump into each other there. And he says, uh, after I saw you in Hawaii, he says, we, uh, our careers took different paths. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, you went uh, on the law enforcement side. He said, I ended up going out. Speak Wild Blue, Wild Blue Press, I have to remember to send them the manuscript of my latest masterpiece, uh, The Stealing Manhattan I was telling you about. We're going to do yeah. a, a, a hardback special edition on fine paper because uh, not only is the main character now a, also a famous artist who's doing, like, ch chapter introduction sketches, but uh -huh. we've got Sean Sullivan, who I mentioned before, uh, Layer Cake New York, who's kind of the uh, Andy Warhol of uh, 2020, very famous, is doing the cover, a custom cover, for the book uh, gratis <laughs> uh, to his contribution and that's going to be on the, the hardback only that's going to have expensive fine art the art of the heist <laughs> as the cover yeah. uh, which uh, it'll be signed and numbered great collector's edition for people who, who like that sort of thing and as they say for people who like that sort of thing that's exactly the sort of thing they like <laughs> When are you anticipating that book will be out? Uh, the faster he can give me those sketches, the better. Uh, we've got an agent working on uh, uh, on, on various things. Uh, I might go with Audible first and go with Wild Blue on the custom edition, and then we'll see what happens as far as the mass market. Uh, that's still up in the air. But it's going to be a good book and a good documentary is being done. And uh, there's film interest and TV series interest because it spans two generations and uh, uh, from actually covers, I think they started doing the heist in the 1970s and didn't stop until, uh, what, 2003. Statue of Limitations is up, so uh, he said, if I was just a good boy and patient until the Statue of Limitations was up, I could have everything. So they gave, yeah. me, so they gave me everything. <laughs> I even know where some diamonds are hidden in New York. Yeah, we're going to go and see if they're still there. <laughs> he says, yeah, he says, I hid diamonds, precious stones, cash, gold. I hid it in various places in the Diamond District just in case I ever needed it. He says, then I went to jail when I went to prison. He says, I haven't been back to see if it's still there. He says, well, that'd make a fun trip for us. Let's go to New York, go to all the places where you hid diamonds precious gems, cash and gold, and see if we can find it. Said, okay. Oh, that's on our agenda this year. <laughs> Treasure hunt. Yeah, boy, no kidding. <laughs> and I think it's who, whoever owns it, whoever has it in possession has it, I think by this time. Yeah, I bet. 
I'm excited about that book. I'm really going to be looking forward to it. Well, you know, you're allowed to put your name in there somewhere as an alias for one of the criminals. <laughs> okay. I'm <laughs> fine <laughs> <I> with you. <laughs> Well, that's, <laughs> now, times, you, know, you, you do have to use aliases for some people because they still know how to shoot. <laughs> yes. And, yes. And, you know, interesting, on when we did Betrayal in Blue with uh, Ken Urell, Adam Diaz, bless his heart, the head of the Dominican drug cartel, or shows a former head of it, I don't know if it still exists or not, he made his millions when he was a young man, uh, cocaine distributor, he went to prison for, like, seven years or whatever. But he called up, wanted to make sure he was accurately portrayed in the book, and uh, did extensive interviews with Frank C. Gerardo Jr. for the book. And he also appears in the documentary, uh, The Seven Five, which is uh, basically the same story. And I mean, I think it's cool when the guy who was head of the drug cartel participates in the book and participates in the documentary to make sure it's accurate. Sure. And I just think that's wonderful. I mean, they can't arrest him for anything now. You know, that was then. So why not talk about it and get it right? You know, if you're going to have a legacy, at least try to control it somewhat. Sure. I mean, I don't want all it ever says about me is like John Bauer said on my gravestone is going to say, he sold a lot of concert tickets. <laughs> oh, gee, thanks. That's my life summed up. He sold a lot of concert tickets. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot, John. I'll remember that. Well, that really changed my life when he said that. I better do something more than that. Like, he sold a lot of concert tickets and refrigerators. <laughs> and books. All right, the new one is called Wrong Numbers. The hookers, the mob, the hackers in Las Vegas, all one big happy family. Buy it, read it, believe it. Thank you, Denny. We'll have you on again in a couple months when you get the other book out. Thank you, bro. Listen, uh, I'll be back in my computer probably by Wednesday. I'll send you that information. Great. Thanks a lot. Hey, hey yeah. Earl. Yeah. Uh, what's next? Magic Matt Allen and the Demons of Decadence, live from the Light of Lounge on OutlawRadioLive.com. 